Matthew 18, verse 15 through verse 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Heavenly Father, we call on you this morning, Lord, uh, for your grace that you uh, would teach us and instruct us this morning, Lord. We pray that you would be pleased, O Lord, to change us by way of your word. That you would continue to fashion and mold us, Lord, into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To these ends, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Everyone said, Amen. Uh, first classes that I took at Geneva College when I was doing my undergraduate work. Um, my major was community ministry, and uh, I had all my electives already earned, so the first class that I took at Geneva was... Uh, uh, was a, one of the classes required for my major, and it was on conflict in the church. It was kind of, I remember kind of being struck. It's like, this is the first class I'm going to get is conflict in the church. Um, but it was, one of the emphasis of that, of that uh, class was the fact that conflict is a part of every relationship on this side of glory. Uh, a relationship requires two or more sinners to come together. And when two or more sinners come together, it's just a matter of time before there's going to be some measure of conflict. And as a result of that, uh, resolving that conflict becomes uh, something that should be uh, a very, of, of, of indeed of great importance to us. And that's what our text is about this morning, is resolving uh, conflict. That really is one of the overarching themes of of this text that we have just read. And, and we might look at it as a window, if you will, on the, on the mild side of all of this. Uh, the instruction that Jesus is going to give to us applies when we're having simple inner uh, relationship problems. Maybe something comes up between mom and dad or something comes up between husband and wife or uh, child and parent or sibling or coworker or spouse. You know, when any kind of issue has kind of begun to drive a wedge between us, well then, uh, Matthew eighteen fifteen is uh, is on board. I think that I probably field more questions along this line than probably any other question that people will typically ask me. Uh, people will typically come to me and ask for advice on how to deal with this issue or that issue, and it's always involving someone else. And Matthew 18 is a place uh, oftentimes where I'll begin to point uh, people. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and then the parable that follows after this, which we're going to be looking at uh, next week. Uh, we might say that this is on the mild side of the window. And of course now on the more severe side of the window, uh, Jesus is teaching us how to handle severe cases 
of uh, open and rebellious sin that might take place in the community of the church. If, uh, if we want the church to be all that Christ has called us to be, then we have to take these verses uh, very seriously. Um, sadly, we live in a day where church discipline has largely disappeared. And um, sometimes when we do hear about church discipline taking place, it's not necessarily taking place in a biblical way. Uh, we, we don't want to just call the church to church discipline. We want to be sure as we call the church to church discipline that we call the church to the correct kind of church discipline. Uh, we really need to understand these verses that Jesus is giving us, this instruction that He is giving to us. I think that one of the reasons we have so much trouble with church discipline is because uh, we, we're really so caught up in being nice. I... Um, Remember when I first came to the faith, I really didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand anything, but I did understand this. I thought, you know, at the very least, Jesus would like me to be nice. So I'm going to try to be really, really nice. Um, and the, that, that's not a bad thing. I'm not condemning that. Please don't misunderstand me. Said, Pastor Rick said we don't have to be nice. I'm not saying that at all. But we're called to be loving. And the fact is, that a person can be really nice to another person while harboring all kinds of malice in their hearts towards that person. But you can't be loving and do that, can you? Not really. Not without faking the loving part. And we're called to be, to be loving. And the principles out here, uh, they apply equally to this whole window, this whole spectrum. From a simple problem that's taking place in the household to uh, open rebellion. As we begin to unpack these verses, we're going to see that they apply uh, to this whole spectrum. So really in this, in this message this morning, what I really hope to do is explain the text and show that, that uh, reconciliation, if you will, or conflict resolution, whatever you want to call it, can be a one-step process. It can be a two-step process. Uh, it can be a three-step process. I hate to use this kind of language because I don't want this necessarily to sound like a how-to to, to uh, uh, conflict resolution, but it is kind of what Jesus, Jesus is leading us in this direction here. Uh, so I don't want to be misunderstood, but I want to develop that. And after that, I, I, I want us to clearly see here that conflict resolution uh, aims at restoration, not retribution. Yeah. There's a big difference. We'll, we'll cover that when we get to it. And the last thing that I want to look at is this idea of binding and loosing that we find in the text, that strange language of binding and loosing. Um, so these are the three aims we have this morning. Let's start with the, the process. If we look at verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, the first thing that should be said here is that Jesus is not calling us to call each other on every single little thing we might do to one another. Um, that, that's not in view here. Uh, if we started doing that, we would become dreadfully irritating to one another, and then someone would probably apply Matthew 18, 15 to ourselves. Um, the Christian walk, in many ways, is, the Scriptures call us to to really develop somewhat of a thick skin, if you will, kind of in a sense, uh, a thick skin. Maybe these verses will flesh out what I'm talking about. 
1 Peter 4 and verse 8 says, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, love is able to overlook a lot of things, is it not? And it does, doesn't it? Uh, Proverbs 10 and verse 12, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. See that idea of love covering. In Proverbs 12, 16, Vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. And if we think of Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians 4, Paul calls us to bear with one another in love, right? In Colossians 3, he does the same thing. Uh, really, Ephesians and Colossians very much mirror each other um, in many, many respects. We're called to bear with one another in love. Um, so these verses are clearly teaching us that really we need to be prepared and joyfully willing uh, to overlook a lot of things that happen to us. That's why I say... We, in many respects, we're called maybe to grow a little bit of a thicker, a thicker skin. Um, but once in a while, once in a while, something happens that we just can't shake off, right? Sometimes things happen and we just can't shake them off. Well, um, he, you know, here's a good rule of thumb. Uh, when something has been done, uh, when you've been violated in such a way, uh, or insulted, or whatever the, the situation is, when it happens in such a way that it seems to be causing a wedge between you and the other person or the other party, uh, that's when we, we look to Matthew 18 and verse 15. Uh, that, that's what's in view. When there's a wedge uh, in place, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. Now, when we're violated like this, one of the hardest things for us to do is to keep the matter uh, to ourselves. Unfortunately, many times when we've been violated, sometimes we'll go tell everybody about the matter except for the person who has violated us. Uh, we begin talking to the matter to all kinds of people instead of going to the person themselves. And we see that this first step is meant to be a private step, isn't it? What does Jesus say? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone or between you and her alone. If the matter is settled there, uh, then that's the end of it. It's a one-step process. The matter gets settled. Repentance takes place. Uh, typically, it probably will take place on the side of both parties. Uh, a lot of times that is the case, not always. Uh, but sometimes the matter doesn't get settled there, does it? Uh, the prouder a person is, the less likely they're going to uh, accept any kind of criticism. And uh, sometimes that doesn't uh, go all that well. And sometimes people will ask, okay, I, I see what you're saying here. I see what Jesus is saying here. Okay, I need to go. I need to go talk to this person. Um, it, you know, I've, I've, okay, I've went and I've talked to this person and, you know, the, the issue hasn't been resolved. How many times do I go to this person and talk to this person before I move to the next step? And the answer to that is it's, it's going to vary from situation to situation. Uh, we're complex. Situations are complex. There's no cookie-cutter answer to that. What we have to do is we have to prayerfully seek God's guidance between these things. And I think as we're doing that, we're all going to realize, we're all going to know when it's time to move to the next step, which Jesus gives us in verse 16. He says, if he does not listen or she does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Now, here I'd like to just pull off the side of the road for a minute and just take in the view. Because right here, the brilliance of Jesus is shining so, so brightly. Just because we feel that we've been violated doesn't necessarily mean we have been violated. Sometimes we make mountains out of molehills. Sometimes we misunderstand. Sometimes we hear things that we want to hear or we think we heard something that never took place. And the brilliance of, of this instruction is, you know, when you go to this second step and, you, and you're thinking about calling other people into it, Sometimes that makes you think, wait a second, am I just making more out of this than I should be making out of this? And sometimes in this, I've seen this happen where people have gone through the first step and then they begin to call other people involved and, and uh, they say, you know something, I don't know that I want to bother anyone else about this. I think, I think maybe I've just been making a mountain out of a molehill here. Uh, Proverbs 11.4 says, Where there's no guidance of people falls, but in the abundance of counselors there is safety. In the abundance of counselors there is safety. Uh, whether you've decided you've made a mountain out of a molehill or not, having godly people involved in this is such a blessing. Because sometimes you're not making a mountain out of a molehill, and this issue does need to be handled. And to have a couple of godly people with you to help you handle this is very, very important. And very, it's, it's a great blessing. A great blessing. Uh, and furthermore, Jesus says, he's, he, he's speaking from the law of God and the Old Testament law that charges are to be established by two or three witnesses, right? They're to be established by two or three witnesses. So assuming that the party still hasn't listened they haven't listened privately. They haven't listened with the little meeting uh, that has brought one or two others along. Uh, then Jesus outlines a third step in verse 17. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a tax collector and a, uh, or as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what's going on there? Well, if the person refuses to listen to the church, then that person is really to be regarded at this point as someone who's outside of, the, outside of a state of grace. And uh, therefore, our, uh, that person would be an object of evangelism at this point. The person's not to be scorned. Um, he, he or she is not to be scorned. Uh, we don't scorn uh, those who we're trying to evangelize, do we? It's not a very good way to do evangelism. I don't think, uh, I don't think you're going to get very far with it. And evangelism should take place in a kind and gentle and loving fashion. So we say there's no place for scorn here. Um, so what is the process? We go in private. If that doesn't work, we take two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, we go to the church. And that brings us to the second part of this that is so very important as we think about this process. And that is that this discipline aims at restoration, not retribution. We don't do this to get even with people who've offended us. If we have that kind of attitude about this, we're, we're in need of repentance. We need to take the log out of our own eye before we go see anyone else. The whole idea is restoration. Look with me again to verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you have gained your brother or you have gained your sister. 
Notice that language of gaining. Why would Jesus use that language? It's because there's a loss. There's a loss. We all sense a loss when our relationships are, are strained, don't we? The tenderness, kindness, the, the lovingness is gone. It's, the lovingness could still very much be there, but that tender and kindness, that, that, that openness is distorted, it's, it's compromised, it's interrupted. There's a loss there. And the aim of this process, the aim of this discipline is to, is to reestablish that. It's to restore that. Uh, it's not to, uh, to get even. Um, if we go to our brother who has sinned against us and he listens and he repents, or she listens and she repents, we've gained them. You see, we've restored that relationship. And that is the aim of here. It's the, uh, it, it, really, the aim is, is the restoration of the sinner. You know, it's, it's not loving to, to leave people in a sinful condition. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I know I need to go talk to this person, but I don't, it just doesn't sound like it would be very nice to go do that. You know, I, just, I don't think it would sound very nice. And Well, again, it, I think sometimes being nice actually maybe will keep us, not all the time, but sometimes will keep us from going through with this. We want to be nice, and it just doesn't seem like it's being very nice. But we need to listen to verses like Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him or restore her. We really need to begin to understand that it's not very nice to leave people uh, in their sins either. It's not very loving to do that. Uh, James offers some counsel for this. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. It might be nice to leave, sweep the thing under the rug, but it's not going to be loving to do it. You see, the, see how being nice can sometimes destroy our discernment? And... Um, Another point that I would like to make is that this work is to be done by everyone in the church, not just the church leadership. In fact, the church functions at its best when we're all wired up this way. You know, think about it. This can be going on on a micro level uh, throughout the whole church. Think of the restorations and the things that can take place uh, in our lives as this kind of thing is taking place versus when it just takes place at the leadership level. So. Uh, sometimes people will listen to a sermon like this or, or read these passages and think, well, this is church leadership. Uh, church leadership here is, uh, uh, th this is a call to church leadership. No, this is a call to all of us. It's a call for every one of us. And we're all going to have to do this because we're all going to have conflict from time to time. And we've all experienced conflict from time to time, haven't we? We've all experienced it. Now, of course, discipline aims at the restoration of the sinner, but discipline also um, aims at the restoration of the congregation. You remember I told you that these verses apply to a wide spectrum of things. And if, uh, if, we're, uh, if we're committed for Tri-State Community Church to be what Christ is calling Tri-State Community Church to be, uh, there will come a day uh, when we, unfortunately, we'll probably have to uh, act on these verses. Sometimes things happen in the community of the church. Uh, open sin takes place. 
and it has to be dealt with. Uh, it's never a fun process. We have a powerful example of this kind of thing in 1 Corinthians 5. Some of you are probably familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the Corinthians because there's a bunch of problems in the Corinthian church. And one of the issues that's going on in the Corinthian church, Paul says uh, in his letter, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now here's an example of, of heinous, open sin taking place in the Corinthian church. And what has the church done about it? They've done nothing about it. And how does Paul address that? What does Paul say uh, to their inactivity? He says, you are acting arrogantly. And sometimes that's exactly what we're doing when we choose to be nice, you know. I know that Jesus is calling me to uh, go and talk to this person, but I think I got a better way. I think I'm just going to be nice. And I, that, can, that can happen. What's really going on when that happens? We think we know better than, than Jesus does. And I can promise you we don't. I don't think there's anyone in this room that really believes that we do. Uh, and that's what Paul's getting at here. He says, you're acting arrogantly. He says, ought you not to mourn? And look what Paul says next. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. He's calling the church to remove this person. And he offers his rationale for it in verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What's Paul doing? He's applying the gospel to the situation. He's saying, listen, uh, you've been made clean because of the death and the atonement of Jesus Christ. The church has been made clean by that atonement, by that death. And now the church has been defiled by this particular act, by this individual. And then he goes on to say that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's he mean there? Leaven is often an emblem of sin when we can encounter leaven in the scriptures. And it's a great metaphor because when sin is left to go on openly in the church, it has a tendency to affect the entire church, just like a little bit of leaven in a bread dough. Can you keep it in one spot? Or if we were to put a little bit of poison in a stew, and we say, you know, we put a little poison in a stew, but I, I just put it over there in the corner, so stay away from that corner over there. Here you can dip your bowl over here. Don't worry, it'd be okay. That's nonsense, isn't it? If there's poison in the stew, we throw out the whole stew. That's why Paul says in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. That's church discipline. It has to be taken seriously because it defiles the body of Christ. So uh, the aim is the restoration of the sinner. The aim is also the restoration of the purity uh, of the gospel. Um, now, um, you know, this man being uh, uh, excommunicated from the church is, is being excommunicated from the table. Is in essence what he's being excommunicated from. is the Lord's table. 
Now, again, um, um, the Apostle Paul's words, we're going to look at these words in just a little bit as we prepare to come to the table this morning. But the Apostle Paul says in chapter 11, verse 28 of 1 Corinthians, he says, let a person examine himself and then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, what's Paul saying there? He's saying that if we come to the table in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. What is that judgment? Well, in the first century, there were people who fell ill and actually died as, as a result of this. But typically the judgment, I think, that comes upon eating and drinking from the table unworthily is that we have a tendency to remain in an unrepentant state as we're allowed to do that. Sin carries its own misery, you know. It carries its own misery. As an unbeliever, I was unable to, to do either of these things that Paul's calling us to do before we come to the table. First of all, I was unable to examine myself as an unbeliever. If I could have examined myself as an unbeliever, then I would have saw my need for Christ and I would have received Christ and became a believer. But because I was an unbeliever, I didn't have the ability to examine myself properly. And secondly, how am I going to discern the body that I can't even see? How do we discern the body? As unbelievers, we don't have the ability to discern the body. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. We can't see these spiritual things until our eyes have been opened, until our ears have been stopped. The church, my point here is the church is not being mean by excommunicating this individual. The church is being loving by excommunicating this individual. In fact, in verse 5, Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is the destruction of the worldliness that this man is participating in. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But by allowing this to continue on and being nice, this guy can go on his business as usual. And he can continue to infect the whole church. And what I'm really laboring to show here is is following these verses is not, it's not a mean thing to do. It's a loving thing to do, provided it's carried out uh, in the correct way. And that, that leads to the last point that I want to make. I, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but these verses that come in verse 18, 19, and 20 can be very confusing. Uh, Jesus says, Truly I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What in the world is that all about? Well, if you've been following the study of Matthew, you, you'll recall that we've come, to these, we've come to these two words before, but it's been a while ago. Uh, way back in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus asks the disciples, He says, uh, Hey, fellas, who do, you, who do you guys think that I am? And that's when Peter makes his famous confession. He says, Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus blesses Peter. And then he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there's a lot of uh, confusion about these verses. What do these verses mean? Luke chapter 11 and verse 52 provide a great commentary on what these verses mean. And in Luke chapter 11... Jesus is rebuking the attorneys, the lawyers, 
And uh, no, uh, no offense to our budding attorney who's with us this morning. We love you. <laughs> it's these attorneys in the first century. Jesus is rebuking them. And he says this, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. See that word, key? You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Now, what had those individuals been doing? They'd been rejecting Jesus. And by rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the gospel. If we reject Jesus, what do we do? We shut the door of the kingdom in our face. That's what Jesus is rebuking them for. You're shutting the kingdom, not only in your own faces, but in the faces of your constituency. You're binding them. You're not letting them go free. But Peter, on the other hand, by his famous confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Peter will go and preach. He will preach the gospel. And as Peter preaches the gospel, people are going to hear the gospel. And some people are going to believe the gospel. And as they believe the gospel, what happens? The kingdom doors go wide open. And they're set free. They're loosened. They're loosened. And as Peter preaches the gospel, some people will reject the gospel. And as they reject the gospel, what happens? The kingdom doors close. And they're bound. The keys is the gospel. This applies to all of us as we share the gospel. If you're in the business of sharing the gospel, people are going to reject that message, I promise you. Do you know, once in a while, someone will receive it too. And those doors will go open. And oh, to watch the doors of heaven go open and to see a sinner repent and trust in Jesus for the first time is one of the greatest experiences that you can have this side of glory. It's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. Now, Matthew 18, 18 is an application of Matthew 16, 19. It's an application in this. By going to a person who has sinned in open rebellion, and calling them on that sin, you're giving them the opportunity to make a choice whether to repent or whether to reject that opportunity to repent. And how they decide on this really reveals their identity, doesn't it? Because the Holy Spirit will bring a, will bring a, a child of God to repentance. It might not happen the first time. It might not happen the second time, and it might be a little ways down the road before it happens. Let's remember, this process sometimes takes a, 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 good, a good amount of time for it to, to work. But if that person remains in open rebellion, especially against the church, as the church is brought in, then that person is revealing that they've never been in a state of grace in the first place. Their identity has been, has been revealed. And when the church excommunicates that person, providing that it's been done biblically, they are truly excommunicated from the church. That's what verses 19 and 20 mean. Where Jesus says in verses 19 and 20, He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. In the case of 1 Corinthians 5, this man who was caught in the sexual immorality when the church at Corinth excommunicated that man, that man was truly excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ. 
I was involved in a counseling case a couple of years ago up at the counseling center. And it was a couple that, that I was assigned to counsel. And uh, after, after a few counseling sessions, it, it came very, became very clear to me that this woman was having an affair on her husband. Uh, she hadn't admitted to it yet, but it was very clear that that was going on. I, I just really believed that was what was happening. Finally, she did come to confess that she was having an affair. And uh, her husband was willing to take her back. All she had to do was break off the relationship, repent, and come back, which she refused to do. And the uh, elders of the church, first of all, I wouldn't have been counseling her if it wouldn't have been for the elders of the church sending her to meet a counselor. The elders of the church sent that couple to us to counsel. And uh, this, once the sin became out in the open, then the elders of the church uh, uh, talked to her about it, called her to repentance. She refused to repent. And she was excommunicated from the church. Now, what this woman went and did was she just went down the street to another church who was happy to accept her and happy to bring her into the fold and open up the communion table to her. Now, here's my point. She's not in the church. Just because someone opens up the doors to you and lets you in the building, and a, and a group of people, probably well-intentioned but misguided, invites you back to the table. That woman was excommunicated from the church. She was still with her lover while she was married to a man who was willing to take her back. That shines a lot of light on verses 19 and 20, doesn't it? Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Sometimes we quote these verses like days like today when there's not many of us present. And we say, hey, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is here. And that's true. That's not exactly what these verses are pointing to, though. You see, they're, they're couched in the, in the context of discipline. It's actually true that if one of us is gathered, Christ is present. Christ is present if only one of us is here. Um, of course, He's present if there's two or three others. But we see this is in church discipline. Now, what have, we, what, have we, uh, what have we learned this morning? We see the steps. Something happens. We go to the person. We talk it out. A lot of times that takes care of the problem, doesn't it? If it doesn't take care of the problem, we seek guidance godly counsel. We take two or three others with us. If that doesn't settle it, we bring it to the church. Not necessarily to the pastor of the church, but to the church. Uh, the pastor probably will be involved. The elders probably will be involved at some point. Not necessarily so. Uh, but of course the session would be involved. The elders would be involved before any excommunication could take place. Uh, and we see the process. But we need to remember that the process is meant to be loving. It's meant at the restoration of the person. It's meant to restore them. It's meant to be done in love. It's not retaliation. It's not, it's not taking vengeance. It's meant to be, the aim of it has to be the restoration of the soul of the person or parties that are involved. And we see that um, excommunication is a serious matter uh, with the binding and loosening. Uh, this is serious, serious stuff. And it's going to get more serious next week when we study the parable that follows because with that parable, Jesus opens up uh, very colorfully 
what takes place. Uh, so with these words in mind, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the instruction that you've given us this morning. And we thank you, O oh Lord, for your word that teaches us, uh, especially on such a subject as needful as conflict resolution. We, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that you've given us instruction in these matters. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that uh, you have been pleased. You, you, you are absolutely brilliant, Lord. Uh, your knowledge is beyond our fathoming. And we thank you. We pray that you would press these things upon our hearts, that we would come to understand them so very clearly that all of us would be involved in applying these verses that, that people could be restored, that relationships that are strained could be, could be repaired, and that uh, you could be, be, be praised, O oh Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen.